My name's Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and um, we are kicking off a new sermon series this morning in the book of uh, the Song of Songs. And I want to welcome you. Um, if you are a, a first-time visitor with us this morning, I want to encourage you to make sure you swing by Connection Point. We do have a gift for you out there. Um, it's really just our way of saying thank you for joining us this morning, and we hope this service will be a blessing to you. Now, today we get to start talking about um, love and, and marriage and sex. Um, this sermon and most of the sermons in this series, I will warn you, are going to be in the PG-13 range. We will be talking about things not crassly, but directly. Um, and, and that means that, that we're going to be talking about sex and we're going to be talking about relationships. And, um, and so if you are prepared to start having those conversations with your kids, feel free to invite them in. Um, I'm sure they will enjoy it. Now, if you're not ready for that, then we have child care back there. All right, um, grab your Bibles. We're going to Song of Solomon. Uh, open up to Song of Songs, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. We would love to put the Word of God into your hand. I would love for you to read uh, Song of Songs this week. Um, and so we would love for you to take it with you and uh, use it to um, engage the Word of God. It's page 560 in our Bibles, Song of Songs. And uh, we're really only going to read a couple of verses today. We're looking at verse 1 and then jumping over to verse 12. So beginning at verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. The word of the Lord. Um, so this morning, we're, we're kicking this off. We're going to be looking, I'm going to be laying some groundwork for this, this sermon series. Um, and and um, over the next six weeks, we're going to be digging in to this incredible little book. Um, now, to set the stage, I want to tell you a story. I used to be a principal in my former life. I was an educator. I spent 17 years as a teacher, an English teacher, and then as a principal. And, uh, and I was a principal at a private school. We owned the building and we owned the facilities, but upkeep was always a challenge. And, uh, and I had an old guy uh, by the name of Roy, um, who was our chief maintenance guy. And uh, when I say old guy, um, he was our chief maintenance guy from the time that he was probably 78 until he was about 95. Um, no joke. I mean, this guy was as handy as they come. I loved him. I loved talking with him and hanging out with him. Um, and, um, and, and he had gone through the Depression. And, uh, and as a result, it kind of shaped him. He was handy anyway, but he had learned how to fix anything and to do it in the most weird ways um, because he, didn't, he wouldn't go buy the parts. He would fabricate them. Like that was just his thing. And, and, and so like we had these tables in the, uh, in the lunchroom that would fold out of the walls, right? They were awesome. They were kind of falling apart. So he fixed them. And, uh, and after he fixed things, um, they tended to be much stronger and much heavier, and sometimes much faster coming down, right? These tables became like 500 pounds and the kids would lower them and they would crush people. Um, it was always entertaining. Now, we had a, um, uh, a, 
a merry-go-round out behind the school. You guys remember merry-go-rounds? They're those things that you grab and you run in circles, and, and, and it's just fun, right? Now, ours was falling apart like much of the um, equipment back there. It was dated. We had bought this school from the public school district, and, and the, it was just falling apart. And so he decided he was going to fix it. And so he got back there, and, and um, he tore that thing apart. Um, and, and in true Roy fashion, he redid the whole thing, right? All of a sudden, he's out there cutting big slabs of steel. And this thing now becomes solid steel, like big triangles welded together and, and new bars and, and industrial strength, right? A, a, an elephant could ride on this thing. I mean, no joke. I mean, it was, it was that hefty. He puts um, uh, commercial-grade bearings in there, marine grease. You know, it takes like 15 guys to reassemble and mount this thing. Um, and we get this thing back there. Um, And the result was we had the fastest, most fun, deadliest (laughs) merry-go-round ever. I'm not even kidding. Um, Any responsible principal would have killed it. I was not responsible. I loved it. I loved it. It was was the heaviest thing in the world. Um, One or two kids couldn't even get the thing moving. Right? So they would just climb around on it. They'd be like, they couldn't do it. So what ended up happening is you end up with like a dozen little kids around this thing. All of them like, yeah, and they're, they're going. Once you got the thing spinning, it never stopped. <laughs> like two days later, it's like still, you know. And so they would get this thing spinning, and they would jump on. And, and, and occasionally a teacher would get back there and, and put a little bit more momentum into it, uh, which was always fun because pretty soon you got kids flying off and tumbling across the lawn. They're giggling. Um, and it was awesome. It was, it was a lot of fun. Every once in a while after school, I would look out there and I would see a group of teenagers coming and playing on our, on our equipment. And, and, and I'd be like, you know, I wonder if I should go warn them. Nah. <laughs> Why would I do that? Way more entertaining to watch them. I mean, what I would tell them is, look, man, respect the merry-go-round. Respect the merry-go-round. That's, you got to respect it, man. Because they didn't. They didn't. So they get out there and they get on this thing and they just started sensing um, after a few moments on it that it had great potential. And so they would start pushing it, you know, and the girls would get on there and they're all giggling and the guys are all showing off how strong they are because the thing's as heavy as a car. And, and they're just spinning this thing and, and the girls are giggling and the hair is, is flying and um, it's all fun and games until this thing hits critical speed. Because there comes a point where it starts generating its own energy. Um, this thing, when it, when it hits a certain speed, it goes faster on its own, right? It's the, the, the centrifugal force uh, and those bodies that are now like pinned to the edge actually increase the speed of this thing. And, and, and the guys are now on and the girls and, and this thing's going. And, and um, it was pretty awesome. You could watch their expressions of those poor souls as they went from joy to concern to terror. <laughs> And eventually, they'd be flung off. And three days later, it was still spinning. I mean, it was just that powerful and that deadly. It was awesome. It was so fun, and it was absolutely dangerous. You guys, this is like sex. There's my bridge. You like that? That was really subtle. Um, That merry-go-round is a metaphor in my brain for sex. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's exciting. It's joyful. It, It has all this promise of excitement. Um, and when it's humming, it's humming, you know, I mean, it's pretty sweet to take a tumble. 
Let's just be honest. It's, it just is fun. But it's also dangerous. You got to respect the merry-go-round. Um, there are a few things more dangerous than sex. Um, it has to be approached with caution and wisdom. You guys, and that's what this book of poetry is all about. It's about the joy and the exhilaration of, of sexual passion and, and erotic love. Um, but it's also about the danger of that passion. It's about the difficulties that come with it. Um, and this book's going to have something for each one of us. You know, as I was kind of laying this out and thinking through, okay, this is an introduction. I want to help kind of set expectations. Here's the thing. If you're married, I hope you're coming into this morning um, with a marriage that's just humming. You know, like it's already spinning. It's in good shape. You're, you're enjoying regular, joyful intimacy and and. Um, it's a safe place and a joyful place. If that's the case, then this series is really just going to be a push on the merry-go-round. It's going to help get that thing going a little bit faster, a little bit more joy, a little bit more fun, a little bit more understanding, um, a little bit more intelligent effort on how to continue investing in your relationship. But I know a lot of you are coming in and, and your, your marriages aren't that great. The, the merry-go-round is not spinning well. You know, maybe it spins occasionally and then stops. Um, maybe it's going in reverse. This series has a lot to say to you as well, because there's hope. There really is hope. God is a God of redeeming and restoring. And, and if your marriage is in bad shape, um, you know, I'm not going to make promises. But I can tell you that there is hope in the gospel, and there's hope in this book. And, and as you take these principles and you put them into practice, I guarantee you, your heart will be in better shape, if nothing else. I guarantee it. Um, some of you are coming in, and... Um, you're single, and you're hoping for romance <laughs> and marriage. And so you're looking around, and you're hoping and looking and hoping and looking. Um, this book's going to speak to you. I mean, what's a healthy way to deal with the passions that are just in you during this stage of life? Some of you have been looking for a long time, and, and you've just had difficulty finding that person. You know, what does it look like to... to, to wait well? What does it look like to manage your sexual um, feelings and, and without, you know, beating yourself up, without denying that they're there, but the passion that is latent in your heart? How do you deal with that? Some of you are not just single, but the reality is, for whatever reason, romance isn't even on your horizon. It's not even part of your plan. This series is for you too. Um, and here's why. I'm going to give you a little glimpse of some of the messages coming up down the line. Sex isn't really about sex. Um, Sex is always about something else. We're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning, but sex is always about something else. Sex is not about sex. And for those of you who are committed to being single, for whatever reason, um, there are a lot of very valid reasons for, for people to, to commit to that. Here's the thing. Um, you can pursue something deeper than sex. Um, and, and we're going to unpack it a little bit this morning. It's called oneness. It's actually spiritual connections with spiritual um, community and, uh, and developing relationships that will meet your deep needs and help you glorify God without necessarily um, being sexually active. 
Uh, you don't have to be sexually active to be a completely fulfilled human being. Those are things we're going to talk about this morning. But, but here are things we're, we're going to be unpacking these things. We're going to be looking at these things and talking about these things because um, I want to invest. And, and, and that's what this book is. It's, it's a, a, an investment in, in our awareness and understanding of this great gift that God has given to us. So I'm looking forward to spending the next six weeks with you in this book. Um, and unpacking it. Now, it's a weird little book. And so right at the outset, uh, the English teacher in me is basically like, I got to give you some background because I want you reading this thing. This week, I want you opening your Bibles. I want you reading Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, as I call it, Song of Solomon in in the ESV. Um, And um, I want you reading this thing. And and you're going to find it challenging. You're going to find it confusing. You're going to be like, that doesn't make sense to me. And that doesn't even seem erotic. That's just weird, right? Um, that's just about animals and, and weird things. And he keeps calling her his sister. That's awkward, right? Um, but I'm, I'm telling you that, that as you read it, there's power in the Word of God. And as you read it, it's going to engage your heart. It's going to help you kind of pick up on some themes and maybe even start asking some questions. And when we get in here and we start unpacking it, your heart's going to be prepared to receive it. It's really just kind of actively preparing yourself to engage the series and grow with it. So I encourage you, it's only eight short chapters, and I encourage you to get into it and read it. Now, to help you in your reading, I want to give you a, a little bit of background. Don't expect a self-help book. Don't expect five easy steps to improve your sexual well-being, right? This is not like the cover of all of those girls' magazines that are at the checkout line at the grocery store, where they always have in the upper left-hand corner a title. It's always right there, and it's always mind-blowing orgasms or six steps to destroy his world or... I don't know. I think they must just have titled little things that they recycle. I mean, how, how would you like that job? My job is to come up with that weird saying every single month that comes out on that cover, right? I mean, seriously, it's every single month. I don't know if there's that many secrets. I don't know. Maybe I'm a skeptic, but I really? Anyway, um, that's not what this is. This isn't a self-help book. This is not five easy steps to a better sex life today. It's an exploration, a poetic exploration of an incredible gift that God has given us. And there are principles in here that we can observe and apply to our lives. Um, At its heart, you guys, you're going to be engaging ancient Near Eastern Hebrew erotic poetry. (laughs) Welcome to college. I mean, this is what we're doing, right? We're digging in and we're looking at at ancient Near Eastern Hebrew erotic poetry. And, and, And it's separated from us, like by culture and by time. It was written in a different language. And so a lot of the poetic elements are going to be challenging for us, right? You're going to, that doesn't even rhyme, dude, right? It doesn't. Um, so we're going to have to come to appreciate poetry from a different culture and a different time and learn to understand its motifs and, and, and its symbols. But let me give you a little bit of background right here. Verse one says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Um, why is it called the Song of Songs? Sometimes there are a couple of different camps. Some people say it's called the Song of Songs because it is the song among all songs. In other words, the best song. This is the best love song ever written because it was inspired by God and put in the Bible. And I would agree with that, but I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is that this is the song made up of many songs. That there is, in fact, this is a collection of poetry. This is many poems put together around a single theme, exploring God's great gift of romantic love in, in, in sex, in, in eroticism, in, in two people coming to love one another romantically. It is a song made up of songs, um, which is Solomon's. It is commonly taught, that, and, and commonly, I think probably, um, especially from preaching over the last 15, 20 years, there have been some great series 
of guys that I deeply respect that have taught through this book, um, and they have taught that, that Solomon wrote it. And in fact, that's a fairly common assumption that I don't agree with. I don't think Solomon wrote this book. Um, the Hebrew preposition that's here um, could be taken to say the Song of Songs by Solomon. In other words, it was written by him. It could also, it's a really vague preposition. It can mean to Solomon. It can mean for Solomon. It can mean concerning Solomon. There's no doubt that Solomon is a presence as you read these poems. But one thing that's striking to me as I read through them is that every time he's mentioned, he's often a a distant figure that's being compared to, not somebody who's being spoken to. And he never speaks in the poem. He is a, definitely a figure. I, I believe that these poems were written either during the, the reign of Solomon or shortly after where he was still this towering figure of grandeur and power. And as a result, he became um, this reference point poetically for the writers. Um, but I don't believe that, that, that Solomon wrote it. There's another reason for that. And that is contextually, it doesn't make sense to me. Solomon is not the kind of guy I want to get love advice from. I'm just going to be honest. If you know anything about Solomon's life, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't even know how you do that. (laughs) I'm just honest. I mean, I don't even know how you do that. Um, He was busy with all the wrong things at all the wrong times, right? So which one of those was this written to, (laughs) right? Now, normally what's argued is that he was writing, this is written to, it was him and the Shulamite, this, this peasant princess um, who, who he was struck by and, and possibly his first love, um, which that would make it really sad because if this was written to his first love, it meant that it didn't last very long, which undercuts its meaning. It's kind of like um, um, Romeo and Juliet, uh, if you've ever studied Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet is supposed to be this great love song. I don't know if you realized it, but Romeo was actually rebounding um, off of Rosaline. Rosaline had broken his heart, I mean, that day, and he was like moaning and groaning and ready to commit suicide until he saw Juliet, and then he's like, love, right? It was just, it's that, that story. Romeo and Juliet is, is actually a study of youthful passion more than genuine love. That's Shakespeare's exploring there. Uh, I, that's not what Song of Solomon is. I don't, that, that's not what it is. Um, and so it doesn't make sense to me. Some people would say that it was actually written by Solomon to a woman later after he had repented, that he, that he repented of all of his promiscuity and marrying foreign wives. And he, and he found this woman and he fell in love with her. And, and then toward the end of his life in repentance wrote this, which is a great theory. The problem is it's not backed up by any historical evidence or documents. We don't find anything else in Scripture that would, that would support that. It's an interesting theory, but it stands on very wobbly legs. See, I think it's way better to just say Solomon didn't write it. Solomon's a presence in it. He's a very powerful poetic presence. But this was actually written um, by people we don't know, inspired by God. God worked through them to, to create sacred Scripture, and it was collected um, and, and became a unit of, of sacred Scripture. Um, connected with that. Anybody who's, and, and I know some of you have listened to the same, series, same sermon series I have previously about Song of Songs, and, and there's generally a plot overlay on the poetry. What that, what that means is they usually follow a sequence where Solomon woos the woman, the woman responds or doesn't, 
depending on which plot overlay you use. There's one plot overlay where Solomon basically takes her and she's in love with a shepherd boy and it's all this tragic love loss. One says he woos her, she falls in love with him, they get married in chapter three. One says he woos her, they fall in love, they get married in chapter eight. Why is there so much difference in the plot overlay? Because it doesn't come from the text. It's people saying, here's a plot we're going to put on the text. And I'm just a little bit too much of a poetic purist to do that. Um, There's no plot here. This is a collection of poetry. And as a collection of poetry, it has themes, powerful themes that we can trace, powerful ideas that we can mine out of there that are, that are practical to us. But we're not going to be following a specific plot line as we move through. We're going to be instead exploring specific themes that arise from the poetry itself. Uh, the other thing we need to realize is that the author speaks in metaphors, a lot of very powerful poetic imagery, some of which is going to be difficult for us because of the distance in time and in culture and in language. Um, and, and so that means we need to have a linguistic framework. There are certain symbols in here that are pretty universal and they're not hard to understand. Vineyards are places of fertility. Gardens are places of cultivated fertility. Um, and, and those often represent um, areas of, of sexual encounter. Sometimes in the text, it actually is going to um, be specifically talking about the woman's body. There are other symbols that, that come out of this that as we see them, we'll be able to recognize and, and start making sense of. But in order to make sense of them, the reality is we need to have also, in addition to a linguistic framework, we need to have a biblical theology of sex. I'm using all these big words. A biblical theology of sex. What I mean by that is we need to have a really Bible-informed understanding of why sex exists and what we're supposed to do with it, because that's going to inform our interpretation. Take, for example, verses 12 through 14. In 12 through 14, um, there's a small snippet of the poem. While the king was on his couch, king here, sometimes she calls him king, sometimes she calls him shepherd. There's other terms. It doesn't mean he's a king. This, these were terms of, of endearment, right? Be like, hey, bae, right? I mean, it's, it doesn't mean you're actually a baby, right? Uh, it means that, 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 that I, it's a term of endearment. So um, what, while the king was on his couch, my nard, which is a, um, um, a fragrant, um, very expensive perfume, okay? My, my nard um, gave forth its fragrance. And so we have this picture of her approaching the man that she loves. She's got perfume on. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh, this, this little packet of, of very aromatic um, herbs that, that, again, gave off a wonderfully sweet smell that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms, another graphic image speaking sensually of smell and sight and color. Um, in the vineyards of Engedi, Aha, there we go, vineyards. Uh, this reference, it's, it's this reference to there's a sexual context here. Engedi was an area that they all knew. It was an isolated um, place. There was a waterfall. It was beautifully lush. It was isolated. It was a perfect place for a rendezvous, if you want to put it that way, right? And, and so she's, she's drawing this very sensual image. So how are we supposed to take this language? What does this mean, right? When we're talking about him, like, you know, her holding him between her, her breasts. Um, it seems pretty obvious to me, but here's the thing. The church hasn't always done very well with issues of sex. Historically, the church has not done well with issues of sex. Um, the early church fathers were highly influenced by Platonic philosophy. Now, Plato was very 
influential um, during the early church. And Plato taught that, that matter was evil and spirit was good. This was not a Christian philosophy. It was a competing philosophy. But the Christian fathers picked up this philosophy from the world and applied it to their Christian worldview. And what that meant was that, that sex was an animal appetite, uh, part of a lower plane of existence, and that became Christianized to basically mean it was sinful. The sex was, was the result of the fall, and that activity in sex was, was dirty. It was, it was unclean. And that continued from the early church fathers all the way through the Dark Ages. Um, <laughs> there was a time during England's history, young women were basically taught sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. Don't be promiscuous. Don't be aroused. Don't bad, bad, bad. And then you get married. It's like, okay, now go do it, right? And, and a lot of young women would be locked up, like emotionally locked up. How in the world am I supposed to engage this? This is actually the advice the church gave. Lie there and think of the queen. Not very arousing. Doesn't do a lot for me. I doubt it did a lot for them. What they were saying was, it's your duty to country to bear children. So just think of this as your duty, your dirty little duty, right? I mean, it was a sense of, of it's, 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 it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, but you got to do it, right? The human race is kind of dependent on it, and, and the empire is kind of dependent on it, so do this thing, right? Our early church fathers... Um, we're messed up. St. Francis of Assisi, some of you have heard of him. Some of his quotes scroll around your um, Facebook wall because he, I don't know, some things are attributed to him. But here's the thing. When he was aroused, um, he would like throw himself in snowbanks. Um, he would just freeze it out of himself, right? That was his solution. Um, it gets even better. Um, St. Bernard, St. Benedict, um, <laughs> when he became aroused, he would strip himself down and throw himself into a thorn bush. Um, he would just fling himself into a thorn bush, which must have been incredibly awkward for the people that were around. Um, seriously, it's like, I think you need to leave. And I think I need to leave. This is just bad news. Um, this is awkward. It's weird. The church father origin, who, by the way, was probably one of the most influential church fathers when it came to Song of Songs. His views of this book became the standard interpretation of this book for the next, I don't know, a thousand years. Origen felt so degraded by his sexual urges that he had himself castrated. This guy is the one who set the tone for the early church in understanding human sexuality and understanding the Song of Songs. And so what he basically said was, when you approach the Song of Songs, he couldn't deny it was Scripture. He hated that it was there, but he couldn't deny it was Scripture. It was too well attested. It was too well accepted. So what he said was, it doesn't mean what, it, what you think it means. I don't think that word says what you think it says. It means something else. They took what we call the allegorical approach. Everything has a deeper meaning, right? It's like Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read that, you got a guy named Christian who is on his way to the kingdom, and he's walking on the way of life, it's an allegory. Every single person in, in Pilgrim's Progress isn't really a character. He's an allegory. He represents a principle, something deeper, right? So when he comes to the city that's called Vanity Fair, it's not a real city. You're not supposed to think of it that way. It's him actually coming encounter with, with the vanity of the world, right? And th- what they would say is Song of Solomon is, is a, uh, an allegory. And that means you better not read it on your own. <laughs> I mean, there's, there were no two allegorical approaches that agreed unless they read each other first. 
because it doesn't come from the text. It has to be imported into it. Our passage, <laughs> our passage. This is one of the disturbing passages for Origen and the other interpreters. Why? Because it's a very graphic image. It's very sensual, very intimate. This idea of her holding this man between her, her breasts in a, in a loving embrace and, and this sweet smell of perfume and it's just warm. And, 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 and you can imagine somebody's already throwing themselves into the thorn bush, right? Um, and so what did they do? They, they, they said the two breasts are obviously not breasts, Right? Um, they interpreted it to mean the breasts of the church from which we feed. They said the two breasts represent the two testaments, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And the sachet represents Jesus that unites them. Let's make it really spiritual. Um, Some said it was the twin precepts of love God and love your neighbor. I don't know how that fits. Some were like, we don't want you thinking about sex at all. That actually represents the blood and water that came out of Jesus' side when he died. Now you feeling erotic? <laughs> feeling it now? Um, here's the thing. It, it just, it was all over the place. It was crazy. It wasn't very well handled. And it left people confused. I'm going to propose something incredibly radical here. I believe the two breasts represent two breasts. <laughs> and what we have described here is an intimate, loving sexual embrace between a man and a woman who are committed to one another in lifelong love. Now, to get there, we have to have a clear theology of love, and I want to help you shape a clear theology of love. In other words, what does the Bible actually teach us about sex? I want you to see it from Scripture, not just hear it from me. So we're going to flip back to Genesis chapter 1, okay? So in our Bibles, that's really easy. It's page 1. You have an advantage if you have a paper Bible right now. You can just flip. If you're on your phone or your iPad, it's going to take you a little longer. (laughs) All right, so page one, we're going back to um, Genesis chapter one. We're looking at verses uh, 26 through 28. All right, starting in verse 26. Then God said, this is during the creation account. This is day six of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, a couple important observations we get from this text. First of all, sex was part of God's original design. Genesis chapter 3 comes before, or Genesis chapter 1 comes before Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where everything goes bad, where mankind rebels against God. Genesis chapter 1, there is a glorious hum to the created order. Everything is in tune with the glory of God. Everything lives for His glory and out of the outpouring of His good. And it's in that setting that God looks at them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply, which is God code for go have sex. Get busy, right? Look at the earth. It's empty. It's your job to fill it, right? Go to it. 
right? Have dominion over the sea, do culture making, do create jobs, right? Do, do all this extra work, and, but be fruitful and multiply. Sex was not the cause of the result of the fall. It was part of God's original design for mankind. What that means is there's nothing intrinsically dirty or sinful or wrong about sex. It is good. It is holy. It is a gift from God. Some of you were raised in homes where you really just couldn't talk about sex, right? It was just one of those things. It was, you kind of knew it had to happen because you're there, but nobody ever talked about it. I mean, who really wants to talk to their parents about sex anyway? That's just awkward. But it was like a, a culture, an oppressive culture. Does that make sense? Some of you were raised in that environment where, where it was just something that had to happen, but we don't really talk about it. And every time it came up, it just got awkward. It just got weird. And what that subtly told you is that this is the sort of thing that, well, you've got to kind of have to do, but, but you don't really, you're not comfortable talking about it. I'm, you're incredibly uncomfortable right now, right? And probably will be for the next six weeks. Welcome to the, welcome to, welcome to the church. Um, but <laughs> what we're saying is, is that this is something that is healthy and good and, and holy. There's nothing wrong in talking about it. There's, there's nothing dirty. There's nothing um, inappropriate with addressing issues of intimacy and, and joy, eroticism. In sex. Um, the second thing that we see is that sex is directly tied to our being created in the image of God. I'm going to risk getting a little bit weird here, but we got we to show the tie-in. Um, in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, he says, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Who's the us? Right? God's saying, let us make man in our own image. I I thought there was only one God. There is. Right? The ancient Hebrews were a monotheistic people. They were very different from their neighbors and were often ostracized and persecuted because they were monotheistic in a polytheistic world. Everyone else believed in in a plethora of gods. They believed in a single God. And yet it says in the text, let us make man in our image. One of the ways that interpreters have sometimes tried to make sense of this is they said, well, this is like the plurality of royalty. Like when the queen says, we must go to the restroom, right? She's talking about herself, not her posse, right? It's, it's just her. Um, but that really doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't think it's well attested. What's really going on here, I think, is, is this is our first glimpse into the nature of God. The Trinity, the triune nature of God. There's one God, but he's made up of three persons. One what? Three who's. You can push into that and you'll only get more confused. I guarantee it. If you're too comfortable with it, you're like, I can totally explain that. You don't get it. You've lost the wonder of it because it's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. One, what, three, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. They are co-equal in glory and power with all the attributes of God, but they are of one essence. There's one God, three persons. And what that tells us about God is that God is an eternal community. If you're picturing God as this old guy out in space that got lonely one day and decided to create the world, you have an unbiblical view of God. God is at his heart relational. There's a dance of love at the heart of God. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the, the, the Father and the Son. And there's a mutual giving and, and taking of knowing and being known, of loving and being loved. The only reason we're relational beings as beings created in the image of God is because God is a relational God. 
in his heart. He is self-contained, needing nothing out of himself. He is both the expression and experience of love. So when he created us in his image, for us to image the triune God, it was impossible for us to do it on our own. Because I got one body and I got one person. It's me, Steve, right? There's not three people in here. It's one. How does one person image a triune God? By moving into relationship with others. He created Adam and Eve. He created male and female because the two of them together would explore what it meant to be created in the image of a relational God. In order to experience the triune nature of God, they needed one another. They were two halves of the same whole. In fact, flip over to Genesis 2, one page over. Um, and I want to highlight in Genesis 2, we have a retelling of the creation account. But I want to just highlight a few verses in, in Genesis 2. Take a look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. So he was created first. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, first poem in the Bible, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So I want you to see, why did God create Eve from Adam, right? Created Adam from dirt, (laughs) Adam's a mud man, right? Nothing real glorious there. He made a little mud pie, breathed into it, and Adam was there, right? And then when it came time to create Eve, he's like, ah, I'm going to take this. I'm going to cut you open, take your rib. Why? Because what he was saying, it was symbolically representing, it was, it was indicating this idea that, that they needed each other. He would need her and she would need him. They were not independent, autonomous, separate, unique people. They were separate but bound. In order to explore the fullness of what they were created to experience, in order to experience the fullness of themselves, they needed others. They needed each other. God created Eve out of Adam because they were two halves of the same whole. And then he goes on in verse 24 and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, the two, shall become one Flesh. Um, God gives the good gift of sex here. I mean, this is, if you see this, there's three steps here, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. That means that, that a young man will first move into independence, right? He, he, we're, we, we are raised in dependence, right? We're dependent on our parents, they feed us, they take care of us, they protect us, they provide for us. There comes a stage, though, where we need to move into independence. And he's, she, the Scripture specifically addresses the man. It is equally applicable to a woman. We need to grow in, in our independence, our awareness of ourselves, grow into ourselves, right, um, so that we are independent. But, but it is on the man, it is his initiative that he needs to provide a place of protection and leadership. Right? So if he's going to, to take the next step, which is um, to, to take hold fast of his wife, which is covenant language, what that means is get married, hold fast, cleave to, um, means to move into covenant with. That's the next step. You need to be inviting her into a place of strength. 
You need to be a guy that has a strong back and rough hands. You need to be able to provide for yourself. You need to go through crisis without curling up in the fetal position in the corner. You, you need to be able to stand on your own two feet. You can't be in a place of dependency and move out to create an entirely new family unit. You need to come with strength, right? So, so move into independence and then woo a woman, win a woman, fall in love with somebody and, and move into covenant. Hold fast. That, that, that's covenant language. It's a beautiful image. It means I bond myself to you for the rest of my life. It's a covenant between me and you and, and God, right? And I know it's really popular today. The, 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 our, our culture basically reverses this whole process. It's hook up, shack up, and break up, right? And so it begins with some sort of physical attraction and activity, and then it moves into, well, we're moving into a long-term relationship. We may shack up and live together for a while. We may eventually talk about marriage. I don't know. And I've had people tell me, look, man, we're spiritually wed to one another in our hearts. We've committed to each other. We had a private ceremony in my closet, man, and, and we love each other. And we don't need a piece of paper. What is so artificial about a piece of paper? We don't need a piece of paper. We have love. I'm not talking about a piece of paper. I'm talking about a covenant that can only be made in the presence of God. And according to our state, there are legal rules on how that is done. And it does include a piece of paper. The piece of paper is not what is important. It is the covenant that you enter into. It is a solemn covenant between two people that say, I am giving myself to you. And you are giving yourself to me exclusively. And we do it in the presence of God. We're going to move into oneness, even as we move into oneness together in our relationship with God. Covenant marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman and, and, and between the God who created them. And then, after they've moved into covenant marriage, the two shall become one flesh. This is obviously poetic language for sex. Right? Now it's time to get busy, right? Now it's time to have sex. The two shall become one. This idea of, of, of the two separate coming together and being united in a unique way. And, and, and it's a poetic image of, of that idea that, that you don't know where one starts and the other ends. There is a union in sex that is intimate and unique and, and, and erotic and powerful. It is the sealing of the covenant and the celebration of the covenant. So sex both seals the covenant and celebrates the covenant. And as you move forward as a married couple, your sexual relationship continues to seal and celebrate the seal of marriage. The two become one. Now here's the thing, you guys. We're talking about sex, but we're talking about something that is way more than sex. As I told you earlier, sex is never just about sex. We're talking about oneness. And oneness is the greater gift of God. Sex is the lesser gift. See, sex is the the vehicle through which a married couple explores and deepens and celebrates oneness. Oneness is the idea that we're the two halves coming together into a whole. That we are going to become something together that we couldn't be individually and separately. There's a lot to unpack here, and, and these are some of the ideas we're going to be unpacking in, in coming series. But as we kind of move toward home base here, um, I just want to highlight a few things. Unlike the early church fathers, we culturally are not afraid of sex, right? The world that I described with the early church fathers is very foreign to us. That's, that wasn't what I was raised in, right? It's not the culture 
I live in. When I watch the Super Bowl later today, those aren't the commercials I'm going to watch. Some dude throwing himself in the bushes, right? That, that's not what I'm going to be seeing. Um, culturally, we are obsessed with sex. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Sex is, is one of these primal urges, and we've just made it common and tied it to everything, right? You know the phrase sex sell, sells, right? Get a group of guys together and like, well, look at this. We got a chunk of ground-up hamburger and got some sauce. How can we make people eat it? I know. Have a lady in a bikini hold it. Makes me hungry for a hamburger. Right? I mean, seriously, isn't that what Hardy's does? Right? Every, Hardy's is like one of the most notorious, but Wendy's is doing it now. And, right? It's, it's sex sells. If I associate my product with sex, some of your attraction towards sex gets transferred to their product. I don't know how a hamburger is sexy. I don't get it. I, it just looks sloppy and nasty. Um, but it happens, right? It's like you got this incredible thing in your house, this incredible thing in your house that actually brings fresh water into your home call a tap. It's incredible, right? You don't have to go to the river and boil your water. You don't have to go to the well. It brings fresh, drinkable water right into your house. But you know what? I think I'm going to drink that bottled water because that lady in half a dress is holding it. Looks sexy, right? I mean, it's just sex sells. And so we're, we're inundated with it. It's on the billboards. It's on our TVs. It's, it's in our sitcoms. It's in our conversations. We are a very coarse, and sex is a very common thing to us culturally as a people. And you guys, we're worse off for it. Sex has lost its mystery. It really hasn't. (laughs) It's still quite mysterious. Um, But as we've lost the mystery of sex, we've lost our respect for sex. And as we've lost our respect for sex, I think we've lost vision for the true power of sex and, and the real gift of sex. I talk to people all the time, and they're like, dude, it's really no big deal. It's just sex. You ever heard that? It's just sex. It's like a handshake, right? You're going to get all freaked out? Come on, dude. It's just sex, right? I meet with guys that, that are in the bar scene, and they're going from hookup to hookup. Sometimes it lasts a day, sometimes a week, a month, but they're just moving, right? It's just, there's nothing real long-term. And you meet with these guys, and I'm like, man, you're going to destroy your life. They're like, dude, I'm just having fun, right? I'm young, I'm free. I, I talk to guys that are watching porn, you know? And every once in a while, I come a guy, it's like, I like porn. They're just honest about it. A lot of guys are like, oh, look at porn right there. No, sometimes you'll actually meet someone. They're like, yeah, I like it. You know why? It's easy. Porn never gets grumpy. Porn never judges me. I can show up and stink, and, and, and I haven't taken a shower in two days, and, and I didn't do the dishes, and I didn't take out the trash. And you know what? It's still right there. It's easy. I like it. Hmm. Here's the problem, you guys. Sex is never just about sex. The Bible says that sex is supposed to be the, the seal and celebration of, of a journey into oneness, where you have covenanted together with someone, and, and, and you're saying, I'm going to go on this journey with you. We are, we are going to explore the nature of God. 
by exploring what it means to become one. That means that, that sex is not just a physical activity. It is a spiritual activity. And, and it's not just shaking hands. It, it is soul fusion. The two become one. There's a part of you that gets connected and bonded to the source of your erotic arousal. Living or inanimate. You guys, sex was designed to be intimately tied to a pursuit of oneness in a committed, monogamous, covenant relationship. And, and there are studies that are done. I'm speaking spiritually. I can talk emotionally. Every time a woman orgasms, she develops an emotional attachment to that person, that situation, that place, that thing. And you, that's why a lot of women get trapped in, in horrible situations. They have these deep emotional ties to men that are deeply broken and hurtful and even hateful. We are wired to be bonded. We are wired to become one. And so what ends up happening, you guys, is, is we work against the natural design of sex. Sex is designed to move you out of yourself. Adam and Eve. Right? The two came together to become one. And what ended up happening is Adam gave himself to Eve, and Eve gave herself to Adam. In, in beautiful, intimate, erotic sex, it, it is about me pleasing you. It is about me knowing you. It is about me loving you. It is about me giving myself wholly to you. Without self-protection, without self-agenda, without it being about me, it is I'm losing me in you. And you're losing you in me, right? That, that is, it moves us out of ourselves to celebrate and love another, to say that you're valuable to me. You're my treasure. In fact, I value you more than I value myself. In the same way that in the Trinity, the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. It is a self-giving. There's no self-protection in the Trinity, there's no, there's no hedging your bets. There's no personal agenda. No manipulation. It is complete yieldedness to the good and the benefit of the other. A pursuit of oneness pushes us out of ourselves. When we pursue sex divorced from oneness... We invert the purpose of sex and we hurt ourselves and we hurt those that we are using. Because sex, if it is not in the pursuit of oneness, is in the pursuit of selfishness. Our hookups, our dating, our, our mutually consenting adults, our pornography, whatever you want to call it, it takes something that was supposed to call us out of ourselves. Something that was supposed to call us into a, a sacred self-giving of ourselves to another in the most intimate way possible. And it turns it into an act of taking. Instead of pushing us out in love and in vulnerability, it pushes us in. We start taking and protecting and, and guarding and robbing. It inverts a process. And in the end, it really just becomes all about me. 
And instead of pushing me out to discover love, instead of pushing me out to push the bounds of love, which actually increases my capacity for joy, but actually increases my ability to, to give and receive love, right? As I self-give, as I learn to move forward in, in relational generosity, sexual generosity, with, with the person I'm in a lifelong committed covenant relationship with, that expands my ability to experience joy and love. When I invert the process, it shrinks my world. Instead of expanding, it shrinks. There's a quote in your bulletin. Um, it's actually from Oscar Wilde originally. Um, it was brought up in, in House of Cards. Uh, Frank Underwood says it in, in a pivotal point when you're really starting to understand just how twisted and broken his world is. And what he says is, is everything in the world is about sex, but sex, sex is about power. And that's true for some people. It's not true for everybody. For some of you, sex isn't about power. It's about approval. You use sex to make yourself feel valuable. When someone loves you sexually, you feel valued. You feel worthwhile. And so you use sex to anchor your identity. I I'm approved. I am valued. I see young women all the time who have discovered their sexuality and how much attention it can get them from young men. And they use that to anchor their insecure identity. That becomes their way. I'm worthwhile because you pay attention to me. I'm worthwhile because you want me. I'm worthwhile because I can entrap you to love me. For some people, it's not power, it's not approval, it's control and security. Sex becomes a tool for living in a chaotic, unpredictable world, and I can use sex to control. It's not about me giving myself to you, it is about me controlling you. I know how to get what I want because I know how to manipulate what you want. For some people, it is purely about pleasure. It is really just about me feeling good. Do you see the inversion? That's not love. Love is always giving. That's taking. It's incredibly self-centered and selfish. I use you to feed a need in me, and instead of an outward movement of giving, it becomes an inward movement of taking. And whereas sex was designed to increase our capacity for joy, for happiness. When we misuse it, it decreases our capacity. It shrinks our world. And the farther we go down that path, the darker it gets. You guys, you know what a black hole is. I I can't explain it scientifically. I'll probably drive some of you nuts right now, but I'm okay with that. Um, A black hole is this weird phenomenon in space where there's apparently this super incredibly powerful gravitational pull, so powerful that it sucks in all matter and crushes it at the center. It's so powerful that it even pulls in light. Light can't even escape. As you go down this path of self-centered, like when you're, not, when you're using sex that's not for oneness, you're using sex for taking, you're going down the path of, of becoming a, a human black hole. And what ends up happening is the farther you go down that path, the less you get. Everything gets crushed. Anybody who's been like into porn for any length of time knows this. There's a diminishing return on pleasure. At first, it was fascinating and interesting and engaging. And then pretty soon, it's, 
mildly interesting, and then it's boring, and then, you know, it's like this diminishing return. Why? Because your world is shrinking. As guys go from hookup to hookup to hookup to hookup, there's less and less pleasure, less and less joy, less and less humanity. It's a world of diminishing returns because the, the circle is shrinking until you're finally just a hollow shell, unable to give and receive love. You become a fragment of a human soul because a guy that's sleeping around a lot, man, every time you sleep with somebody, you're becoming one with that person. And then you're leaving them and leaving part of you with them. There are people, that, little pieces of you walking all over the city. It fragments your soul. I sit down with these guys, and, and, and they've been in this hookup culture for a long time. They're like, you know what, man? I don't understand why I struggle so much to trust people. I don't know why I'm struggling so much to be committed. A committed relationship terrifies me. But I got this woman. She's beautiful, and she loves me. And I don't even know why because I'm such an idiot. But I'm having a really hard time like, just committing to her. Why? Because you got like half a soul, dude. You have fragmented your ability to love. Sex was a great gift that was given in the context of a greater gift, and that greater gift is oneness. There is nothing more satisfying, nothing more fulfilling, nothing more powerful than moving into oneness with someone who loves you and you love experiencing a deeper and deeper level of unconditional acceptance and joy and delight. And it is ultimately oneness that frees sex into its greatest beauty and greatest power. I don't say this stuff to condemn you guys. I'm just trying to describe what's real. And I'll tell you, man, this is one area that I am so incredibly grateful for the grace of God in my life. And I don't, usually when I give illustrations about myself, I'm the butt end of the joke. And I do that on purpose because I like you to see that, that I'm a broken person in, desperately in need of grace, and grace meets me. And if it can change me, it can change you. I mean, that's kind of my philosophy of life. Um, if, if, if I can live this stuff out, you can too. And so I don't have any problems showing you where I'm broken or where I hurt. Or, or This is an area where, honestly, God just protected me. I was 17 years old when I became a believer, and I was still a virgin at that point. It wasn't for any lack of trying. On my part, I was just awkward and stupid. Um, <laughs> that's just reality. So there's no braggart there. I'm not wanting you to hear that. There was nothing that was... But I became a believer. And at 17 years old, I met Lauren. And over the course of that first year of being a believer, God just wrecked my heart in beautiful ways. And in wrecking my heart, I came to look uh, for people that were wrecked in the same way. Lauren is somebody that, that when I first saw her, and, and she knows this, my first thought when I saw her is, wow, she's tall. Um, <laughs> that's true. An attractive person, but not somebody that I was personally attracted to. We actually didn't like each other when we first met. Um, I thought she was kind of arrogant. She thought I was stuck up. Um, I was a show-off and, and obnoxious, and she was studious and had everything together, and all of her T's were crossed and I's dotted. And that wasn't me. But after that course of that year, we, we, we started hanging out. We started talking. <sighs> we started praying together, which is a really dangerous thing to do um, because it's very intimate. I had no idea. Uh, but we met at 6.30 in the morning. She was the only one that would get up that early to meet me to pray. 
And we would get up and we would pray in the morning. And we developed this friendship, and then that developed into an awakening of romantic feelings. And um, by um, all the grace of God, we've just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And I'm just telling you that, that there is nothing more fulfilling in my life than my relationship with my wife. We did a marriage conference recently where we were kind of just talking about marriage and the principles of marriage and how to get the most out of it. Because if you know Lauren and I, you know we're radically different people. We are about exact opposite. Okay, Myers-Briggs, I'm ENTP, she is ISFJ. I mean, we're about as opposite as it gets. I'm fast, she's slow. I'm chaos, she's order. It's crazy that this thing works, but it has. Um, and, and so we share some of the principles that we've learned, how we learn to fight well together for the right things instead of against each other. Some of the principles we'll unpack as we go through this. Um, but as we were going through, there was a Q&A time, and they were asking questions. And, and I forget what the question was that triggered it. And I hadn't really thought it out ahead of time. But what came out of my mouth was I, I said, look, Jesus saved my soul, but Lauren saved my life. And I didn't even really know what it fully meant. I knew it was true. It felt very true, and, 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 and I knew it was true, but I didn't know what it meant. And Lauren, of course, just starts bawling. She's like, wah, right? Like, uh, oops, you know, couldn't you have told me ahead of time you were going to say something like that, right? Um, <laughs> and, and I'm like, because here's what I meant. And, and as I've thought about it, this is what I meant. Jesus saved my soul. Jesus, I was on a path of self-destruction. I had no hope. I was going from brokenness to brokenness. I was, I was a ruin moving into ruin. And God called me out of that. And he saved my life. And he gave me hope and completely reoriented my, my outlook on everything. And, and he saved me. But then he gave me Lauren. And, and Lauren and I learned how to love each other. And it wasn't always easy. In fact, it was really difficult in seasons. We were so different and so much conflict. And, but we learned to love each other. And in learning to love each other, this is what happened. I learned how to love. I'd close myself off. I came from this background, man. I, you self-protect. You don't talk about things. You, you guard things. You hide things. You bury things. That doesn't work well in a marriage, by the way. Um, and, and I had to learn how to come out of that. And, and, and she was my safe place. I learned to love her. And it was my love for her that actually moved me through the discomfort of change. And what ended up happening is I actually learned how to be loved. I didn't realize how difficult that was. In closing myself off, I had not only closed myself off to giving love, but I had closed myself off to receiving love. That was incredibly dangerous. It was costly. It was scary. But ended up happening is, is the boundaries of my life expanded. The experience of joy, the experience of love expanded. I didn't see that coming. I didn't know it was going to happen. And, and honestly, it's only been in the last 10 years that I've come to a place where I can even reflect on it and look at it and see it in my life, the power that it's had. And I'm just telling you the story, not so you say how great Steve is. I'm just telling you it's better. It's better. God's way is better. He's not some cosmic killjoy up there trying to rob you of your experience and freedom. He's saying, I gave you this great gift that I'm telling you how to get the most out of it because I love you. There are principles. There are things that we can do, but it begins honestly with recognizing that oneness is the greatest gift God has given us. Because it starts with oneness with Him. It begins with our relationship with God. 
That's why Jesus came and died and rose again so that we could move back into relationship with God. God is a relational God and he wants relationship with us even though we are broken, sinful people. He loves us unconditionally in spite of our flaws, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our sin. And he invites us back into a relationship of oneness with him. And as we learn to open our hearts back up to the God that we have judged and separated ourselves from and sinned against and come into that forgiveness and reconciliation, it frees us in love with others. Oneness is the greatest gift God has given us. So wherever you are on your journey, wherever you're sitting this morning, I know some of you are, are, are things are going well, and I know for some of you it's not. And I know for some of you, you've done things that you're just carrying the weight of, and I know for some of you things have been done to you that were not your fault. And you're carrying the weight of that. And you're wondering, is there redemption for me? Is there hope for me? Some of you, your, your, your marriage is in bad shape. For some of you, it already died. And you're sitting here divorced. And is there hope for me? And I'm telling you there is. It may not look exactly like you want it to look. It may not, your story may not be told exactly as you would want it to be told, but I will tell you this. The God who loves you will tell a better story for your life than you would tell for yourself. And that includes the redemption of your sexual history and, and all of the woundedness that comes with it. The God who loves you sent his son to die for you. He is not alien or absent from your suffering. He stepped into your suffering to take your shame, to take your guilt, to die so it would be put to death. And when he rose again, he did it to give you new life and new hope. If you're in a bad place this morning, listen, there is healing. There is hope. And the gospel promises redemption and restoration. But over the course of this series, what you're going to find is if you're going to take hold of it, it means you're going to have to learn to repent. Repentance is one of those big religious words. It's totally loaded, but it's a beautiful word. Repent simply means reject and leave behind the lie that's controlling your behavior and embrace the truth instead. Stop embracing and and believing the lie and instead run to the truth and let the truth set you free. It means saying to God, I want you and I want to trust you. I want to follow you. It's saying to Jesus, I believe in you. You were my substitute, you died, you took my place, you rose again, and because you rose again, I have hope and I have a future. I will believe that right now in spite of my suffering, in spite of my present circumstances, in spite of how bleak things are, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can give hope to my heart. So as we move through this, you guys, I want this to be a redemptive series. I want it to be a series that challenges us. I want it to be a series that encourages us. And I want it to be something that frees us. Some of us into the sexual beauty of our marriages. Some of us into the beautiful oneness of spiritual relationships with people around us. Some of us into healing from past past suffering and pain and abuse. Some of us to a renewed and awakening hope for the future. But this incredible little book, I'm telling you, it is loaded. For this morning, 
We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray and do some business with God. I want to create some space for the Spirit of God to comfort you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to convict you, whatever it is He needs to do in your heart. I want to remind you that we have worship response cards in our bulletin. If you didn't drop that in the basket, we would love for you to fill it out. If you have a prayer request, fill it out and put it in there. The leadership team will pray with you and for you this week. If you want to talk to somebody this morning, grab me, grab Dan, the guy who did the offering. <laughs> you know, grab, grab one of the leaders around here and just say, hey, I need someone to pray for me this morning. We will, we will get someone to pray with you and for you. We want to be in community with you. Because these problems are never solved in isolation. Never. They're solved in community. So reach out. We love you and we invite you in. All right, here's some questions I want you to ponder as we create some space for the Spirit of God to speak to your heart. First of all, is there any area of sin, brokenness, or suffering you need to bring before God? Those are three very different things. An area of sin is an area in which you are walking in rebellion. You are actively pursuing the wrong thing. You are actively believing the lie and putting it into practice in your life. Is there an area of sin that you need to bring before God? That's always the first step is honesty. It's called confession. It's just coming before God and saying, God, I desire this more than I desire you. And I think that's wrong. And I don't want to do that. Will you change my heart? Will you awaken my desire that I desire you more than my sin? That I desire what is healthy and good and life-giving instead of what is death? Areas of brokenness or areas where you just have ruin in your life, where, where it's a result of sin, either your sin that resulted in brokenness and a wreck or, or someone else's sin that you've suffered at the hand of? Are there areas of brokenness that you have kept isolated from God, that you have not brought into the presence of God, that you just simply haven't invited God into? Suffering. Those places that are so painful, you'd rather just cover them up than look at them. You'd rather put the bandage on and... and but here's the thing, man. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Time only heals clean wounds. And we clean our wounds by bringing them into the presence of the grace of God. What does it look like for you to honestly bring your suffering into the presence of the love of God and let the grace of God meet you there? And then, filling your vision. Jesus rose from the dead. Where do you need help? Do you really think your problems are so great that the God who raised Jesus from the dead can't meet you there? The God who, who like a corpse, you guys, a corpse. He breathed and Jesus came back to life. The God who creates something from nothing. The God who holds life in his hand. The God who paid the price for your sin so he could redeem you and restore you and now holds in his hand all the blessings that he will give to you because of the work and the blessing you have in Jesus. Where do you need hope? Fill your vision with Jesus, not with your brokenness. Fill your vision with Jesus, not your pain. Fill your vision with your blessing. And I'm telling you, God will meet you there. This is the first step. It's not the only step. It's the first one. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father God, I thank you that you are a gracious, giving, loving God. That you model for us what it means to love, and to love by giving. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us your Son, and in giving us your Son, you have with Him given us all things. And I just want to pray for my friends. 
God, the giver of all good gifts, I pray that you will meet them where they are. Spirit, I pray that you will hover over this space like you hovered over the waters of original creation to incubate hope, to bring the warmth of love. that you will take the redemptive work of Jesus, the price he paid, and apply it to our hearts that we wake up to greater desires and greater hope and a greater longing for what is real and lasting and life-giving. We thank you that you are the God who redeems and restores. 